Hello and welcome to Sermons by the Park, the weekly sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. At Union, we believe in the radical welcome of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Word of God to inspire and transform us. We're happy to share that message with you wherever you are on life's journey. Now here's this week's message. First scripture reading this morning is 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 to 9. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under the instruction of Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up, and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Our second scripture reading today picks up the last half of the story here in 1 Samuel. Let's continue to listen for God's word for us here today. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Well, Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid. He was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. Eli said, what was it that the Lord told you? 
Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. May God add a blessing to this reading of Scripture. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer now? Let us pray. Gracious God, today we remember remember generations that have come before and generations still to come, a great cloud of witnesses, all gathered by you for the purpose of glorifying your name. Help us to come into their presence and into yours. Be with us now that we may be inspired to run the race you have set before us and that we may be inspired to look to Christ, who pioneered and perfected this faith of ours, trusting in you above all things, even unto death. For beyond death there is surely life, and life abundant. And for this we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. There once, I think, was a time when the sound of a ringing telephone was cause for excitement. When the telephone would ring, there was always this sense of possibility. Someone was calling, someone had something to tell you, something was about to happen. And if you had just one telephone in the house especially, whoever made it to the telephone first got to pick it up, and there was this moment, is it for me? Who is it for? Who could it be? And then, of course, there's this this moment of fearful joy, and then, and then we all utter the, the word that you utter when you answer the telephone, hello? Sometimes the voice would be familiar. Sometimes they would recognize you by your voice. If you were a kid, they would say, can I speak to your parents? If, if it was in front of your friends, they would say, hey, what's going on? But sometimes the voice would be a stranger's voice. Sometimes the voice would ask to speak to another member of the household. Sometimes they would even uh, misaddress the people in the household. Um, For instance, my mother's last name is Brighter. It's spelled B-R-E-I-T-E-R. But when you see it on the page, you don't think to yourself, Brighter. And I'm sure all of the many telemarketers and fundraisers who have called over the years have all had their own little interpretations of this name. So many a time I would answer the phone and be asked to speak to Mary Breeder, or Mary Breitner, or some other variation of that, and I would know instantly that this was not a familiar person. And so I would say the next thing that you typically would say after you say hello, you would say, who's calling? The salespeople or the fundraisers or the election phone bankers then would have to tell on themselves And I could ask them to wait and track down my mom and ask if she'd like to speak to the folks from the World Wildlife Fund or State Farm Insurance or the Democratic Party or whoever it was. Uh, Most of the time the answer was no. (laughs) And then I would return confidently to the phone and tell the caller as much. Only I wouldn't say, uh, she would not like to speak to you right now. 
I would say what we always say. She's not here right now. Can I take a message? I always believed that uh, that kind of blunt truthfulness is impolite, even to perfect strangers on the phone. You don't tell them, <laughs> no, she doesn't want to take your call. I don't want to take your call. Um, but I also greatly envy those folks who can just end a conversation in that way. I think it saves a lot of time, uh, sometimes being overly polite to people who call you up with a sales pitch or a fundraising notice can lead you to have a much longer conversation that you had initially intended to have. But I think this morning's passage shows us the importance, the importance of having the courage to speak the truth. For the truth is what sets us free. That's what Samuel is asked to do by Eli. And then, as he goes on in his career, subsequently as a prophet of God in what will be tumultuous times, Samuel's role is to continue to tell it like it is, to tell the truth, even when the truth is something that is hard to hear. Last week, we heard the story of the prophet Deborah, who was a leader during the time of the judges. This was a time when there was no king in Israel. It says in Judges 21-25 that in this time, everyone did what is right in their own eyes. Of course, throughout that period, the different tribes of Israel were often in conflict and disunited. There were only rarely extended periods of peace and unity, such as the one that was enjoyed under Deborah's leadership. But during this time of the judges, peace and unity were the exception, not the rule. And uh, I think about the book of Judges sometimes uh, when I think about how tumultuous the world seems now. We are, of course, in election season. Don't forget to vote if you haven't already. Uh, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, this election, this midterm election, is the most election, most important election of our lives. This is the most important election of our lives. And I think it's funny because, of course, the last election was the most important in our lives, and the one before that, and the one before that. It seems like every election these days is the most important in our lives. And that's because the stakes really are high these days. And one wonders where God is in all of that, just as one wonders often in the book of Judges where God is in all of this. Political strife, turmoil, rivalry, violence, the book of Judges has all of that. And the book of Judges, then, is the context that Samuel's story begins in. We're still in that period. Only the book of Samuel turns away from the leaders, from the politics of the people of Israel, and turns instead to the house of Eli. All throughout the period of the Judges, there were religious professionals like Eli and his forefathers, who just kept chugging along, doing their thing in the temples. The law of Moses dictated that sacrifices be made, festivals be kept, prayers be uttered, and Eli and those who came before him were responsible for doing that. Yes, the world was chaotic outside and wild beyond the doors of the temple, but inside it was business as usual. The rituals were practiced, the prayers were prayed, the offerings were offered, time marched on. But what this book shows us 
is that even the temple was not as hermetically sealed from the outside world as we would like to believe. You see, uh, the sons of Eli, who get mentioned briefly here in our passage today, the sons of Eli, they had a different sort of approach to their work uh, as priests in the temple. They were uh, making it a habit of it to taking a pretty significant portion of the offerings that were being brought to the temple. Uh, they would withhold prayers. They would blaspheme against God. All of this is recorded in the second chapter of First um, Samuel. In other words, after the broader pattern of society named in Judges, the sons of Eli did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was good for themselves rather than what is good and right in God's eyes. And even though it says that Eli's sight was failing him, that he was becoming blind, he was not blind to what was going on with his sons. He was aware enough to tell them, you all need to shape up. You can't keep going on like this. And even after he had told them, we read in chapter 2 that a messenger from God, a man of God, comes to speak to Eli and tells him straight up that his sons will be punished and that his house will come to an end and there will indeed be a new and faithful priest who will build up a house of the Lord, a true house of the Lord. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel has been there the whole time, serving the Lord under the instruction of Eli. He's been learning the way of the trade from this elder this despite the fact that it says in verse 7 that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Samuel had been consecrated into service in the temple of God as a child after, in order to fulfill a promise his mother had made for him to be born in the first place. And so he had grown up going through the motions of these rituals, doing as he was told, standing where he was told to stand, saying what he was told to say. He knew them by heart, and yet he did not understand what they meant. He did not know the Lord. Though he had been in church all his life, he didn't really, the scripture tells us, know what that meant. <clears throat> And I don't think this is because he was too young to think about such matters. I think children are often sort of sold short on their ability to think theologically and imaginatively. More likely, it is just the fact that the times themselves were bad. We're told that the word of the Lord is rare, that visions were few and far between in those days. Whether that is because of all the craziness and tumult outside of the temple or the corruption and rot within it, or whether it was just God choosing not to speak during this period, we can't really say. But what we can see in Samuel's example, his life, is, is the difference between a religious practice and a religious experience. Howard Thurman draws this distinction in his book, The Creative Encounter. He says that religious practice is what we do most of the time. It's the rituals, the prayers, the offerings. Again, those things that had been going on in the temple. But religious experience, Thurman says, is a different thing. Religious experience is the conscious and direct exposure of the individual to God. Such an experience seems to the individual to be inclusive of all of the meaning of their life, there is nothing that is not involved. 
In other words, the religious experience is a fundamental change to one's very self by being exposed to God. The call of Samuel demonstrates this. The Lord calls Samuel by name. He calls him completely. It's a direct exposure of God to Samuel, and so Samuel responds. But of course, Samuel is not really conscious that this is what's going on. In fact, it's the middle of the night. He's probably not super conscious in the first place. Half asleep, he misrecognizes the source of this call. He thinks that it's Eli calling him. It's another one of those phone calls from someone asking for something. Instead, he doesn't realize that this is a phone call from someone who already knows him. And not the way that I used to get phone calls when I was a teenager and people would assume that I was my dad because our voices kind of started to sound the same. It's not even that kind of phone call. This is a phone call that says, no, Samuel, I meant to call you. I have a message for you. Of course, anyone who has been awoken by a child in the night can empathize with Eli's uh, response in this situation. We can pardon him, I think, for not grasping the gravity of the situation. Twice he says, get some water and go back to sleep. It's 2.30 in the morning. Please, please. But by the third time, and this is how it goes, right? By the third time, he's already awake. He's fully awake now, and he realizes what is happening. He says, I'm up, and I think I know what's going on. So let me give you just one more instruction. Next time you hear that voice that says your name, just stay there and say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. I'm sure Samuel had gotten lots of instructions from Eli over the years, and so he was probably used to just doing what he was told. Again, going through the motions. And so he hears his name, and he he does exactly what he was instructed to do. Speak, Lord, I am listening. Only this time, he actually doesn't just have a, a religious practice. He experiences the richness the divine encounter. Of course, the message that he's given is not exactly a welcome one. The prophets have always been deliverers of hard truths, but in some way this first prophetic truth that Samuel gets is a particularly hard one. God essentially tells Samuel, who has, again, grown up in the house of Eli, That Eli's sons are doomed, that the house of Eli is at an end, and it's his job to to go and tell him that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being told, um, by the way, your spiritual mentor, your priest, your your guide, the one whose authority you've been been listening to, that you've been following all your life, uh, they're a criminal, an abuser, someone who is hopelessly corrupt. Or some people don't have to imagine that experience. They have had that experience. And knowledge can be devastating and a source of deep spiritual trauma. But now imagine that the next day is Sunday morning and you're going to be hauled into church to see that priest. And the priest is going to say to you, what's new? Tell me, I really want to know. Would you have the courage that Samuel has? 
to tell the truth to someone with that kind of authority and power. He's a child, and yet he is asked to to say to his religious mentor that this religious institution that he is embodying is going down. It's at its end. Indeed, Samuel is afraid. It says he was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing even when we are afraid. And so Samuel has courage, and he tells Eli everything. And of course, the irony is Eli already knew all of this. He had already been told all of these things. A man from God had already come and said, your sons are bringing about the end of your house. This is the punishment of God. It's going to happen. So maybe that's why it's a little confusing that Eli's response at the end of this whole thing is, so says the Lord. It is what it is. Samuel must have been very confused at that response to his vision. It just goes to show that sometimes the things we are afraid of, God has already made a way that we don't necessarily realize until we walk it. Of course, Eli has already had his divine encounter. He has had the word uh, exposed to him. He has received this revelation. And of course, he had probably hoped for years that the same would happen for Samuel, that his religious practice would become a religious experience. That is the hope of all those who have dragged their children to church over these many generations, of all of the people who have taken the time to teach Sunday school or to mentor us, it is always the hope that sometime, somewhere along the way, those religious practices will yield this religious experience. On this All Saints Day, we remember those folks who have died in the Lord, those who, whose experience of God opened a way to more abundant life for them, And, by the way, they touch our own lives for us. uh, Last week, I had the chance to go to a conference on intellectual history. And you may recall over the summer, I gave a sermon about saints. I gave a series of sermons about saints. And one was about the Reverend Samson Occam, the first Native American minister ordained in the Presbyterian Church. I got to go to this history conference and talk a little bit about Samson Occam as this figure in uh, American history. And so I had a chance to revisit some of his writings and things this week, and uh, I couldn't help but notice that first Great Awakening, 18th century Puritan, fire and brimstone, all in his sermons. Occam did not pull any punches. He came out of uh, a Mohegan village that he saw all around him was, was, was suffering under the encroachment of the settlers. But then at 18, he had this conversion experience. He heard one of these fire and brimstone preachers talking about the weight of sin. But the thing about all those fire and brimstone preachers that we always forget is that even as they offered and brought forward this vision of fire and brimstone and hell and damnation for the sinful, on the other hand, they would then offer the good news, the gospel, that in trusting in Christ, Christ would redeem us from all the weights of all of those sins, and that that promise was not a general and vague promise, but it was for each and every person as they heard those words. Those promises are from God's lips to your ears. 
Lynn, Pam, Dave. Christ died for your sins. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. You see, people in that time responded to the fire and the brimstone with hope. We call it the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening, because people were inspired. They were responding to a tumultuous situation. The, the colonies were, were a mess. And for Occam in particular, it was, the, it was the, the degradation of the native communities, his fear that their culture would be lost and destroyed if they couldn't find a way to, to salvage it. And so he turned to the gospel as the tool for that. The divine encounter can indeed place weighty and hard truths upon our shoulders that are hard to say, but it is important to remember that it is also a gift, a gift that we are called to freely give. Many centuries after the time of Samuel, there was a vision that came to a Christian named John who was in exile on the island of Patmos. This vision is captured in the book of Revelation, where John the Revelator, of course, writes about apocalyptic events, about beasts rising out of the sea and fire and brimstone coming down from the heavens. John's revelation is indeed about the judgment of God against a culture that was antithetical and persecuting towards Christians. But we would be remiss if we didn't see also in that revelation the good news. For John looked upon the throne of God and saw a great multitude, so many that no one could count from every nation, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. John saw them crying out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And then one of the elders, one of the elders turned to him, just as Eli turned to Samuel and said, who are these robed in white? Where have they come from? And John said, I don't know, you tell me. The elder responded, the elder instructed. These are those who have come out of the great ordeal. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And now they will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is the vision of All Saints Day. That is the vision of a great cloud of witnesses, and the dream, the good news of Jesus Christ. We gather and we practice sharing that good news each week, hoping, praying that the word of God is still speaking, that visions, though they may be few, are still available to us. Thanks be to God for that. Amen. Thank you for listening. To find out more about Union Congregational Church and our life together, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org, or find us on social media, at Church by the Park. Until next time, may God's grace and peace be with you.